Timothy chapter 3. Father, as we open your word this morning, um, we don't want to just gain head knowledge. We know that your word has been given to us to be instruction for our daily living. And so, Father, we're going to feast on it, and we're going to try to study it the best we know how. We pray for your Holy Spirit to empower us, to give us understanding and ears to hear. And we pray that your Spirit would be free to speak to each one of us the things um, that you've been trying to to continue to, to teach us, but also to instruct us and lead us in these future days. And so, Father, use your word to equip us for the, the work of the ministry, but also to be convicted of things that maybe we need to have corrected in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we just look forward to what you have for us. In Jesus' name. So in 2 Timothy, Paul continues to write to Timothy. And as he writes to Timothy, this is a letter. So remember, each week we're, we're taking a little piece of it and kind of dissecting it and trying to understand what he was writing to Timothy. But realize that uh, you might even understand some of the major themes of this letter if you just sit down and read it all the way through. So I would encourage you this week, if you get a chance, when you're doing your daily time with the Lord, just read through the entire letter. It's only four chapters. But remember that this is Paul writing to Timothy from prison. And he knows that his death is imminent. And so it's his last words on essentially from his deathbed. He's not on a deathbed. He's not in a hospital, but he knows his life is getting ready to be taken from him. And he doesn't look at it like, hey, these men, these evil men are going to kill me. He looks at it like this. God's taken me home and my time is short. So I want to impress everything I can upon those who I discipled. And in this particular case, it's actually Timothy, who Paul calls his son in the faith. And so in the last chapter, in chapter 2, Paul has talked about uh, disapproved and approved workers. And he talked about being uh, those workers for Jesus who endure. And he also talked about that there are some things um, that we need to make sure that we're allowing God to cleanse us from. But then in chapter 3, he turns the corner and he's going to give a very harsh, not a harsh, a stout warning to Timothy. He says this in chapter 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, Timothy, I instruct you, turn away. And so he starts in verse 1 through 4, excuse me, yeah, verse 1 through 4, and I don't know about you, but he lists out some things, uh, 1 through 5, he lists out some things that I would not like to have said about me. He says, in the last days, there will be perilous times that will come, destructive times. And the word there for perilous is actually the same word that's used to describe the men who are demon-possessed that Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee in Gadara. The, the word there, the broke-down word, is actually what's used to describe those men, these men that are, are essentially... Uh, like animals. They're chained 
in the, among the tombs and in order to get free from these chains, they're cutting themselves and they're just like wild beasts. And so he says, in the last days, perilous times will come, dangerous times. And so he warns them of what people will be like in these last days. Now, if Paul was writing to Timothy at the turn of the first century, and he says, in the last days, people will be like this, Paul's describing people that existed in those days. How much more so do you think it is now? 1960 or or 30 years later, you know, men uh, will be lovers. Paul describes these people to turn away from, but the theme, I don't know if you notice this phrase over and over again, men will be lovers, but not the love of the Father, not the love of God. Men will love things instead of people. Men will love themselves instead of others, and he says there, they will be lovers of self, they will be lovers of money, and they will be lovers of pleasure instead of God. Now, this is convicting to me, because I think that for me, I many times when I screw up, it's because I love myself too much, I love financial gain too much, or I love pleasure too much. None of those things are bad, by the way. God has created us, ourselves, he's created money, and he's created pleasure. If God is first, we will actually experience more pleasure in doing the things that God's given to us than if we don't know him. But when pleasure becomes what we love instead of God, when money becomes what we love instead of God, when self, your very self, you love yourself or your family or anything more than God, guess what? That's what we define as an idol. And anything that gets worshipped before God becomes an idol. We worship it, we fear it, we serve it, and when we forsake God. And so he says, in the last days, Uh, Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And because of that, they love pleasure more than God. They will be boasters. They will be proud. They will treat people unrighteously. And um, sin will abound, essentially. So uh, notice this. It says there, uh, verse 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. These people will actually be those that take advantage of the weak. It describes those that they'll take advantage of. Um, Let's see, gullible, uh, led away by various lusts, and they're described as learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Have you ever met somebody like this? They're always seeking something more but they're looking for love in all the wrong places, you know? They're, they're looking for pleasure. They're looking for meaning and purpose. And sometimes it's stuff. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's, you name it, uh, the next concert, you know, a job that will be more fulfilling or more easy going. Or they'll try to look for and learn about things. And for some of them, they're very religious, they're gullible, and so they believe anything anybody tells them. They don't have an anchor point. They don't have a foundation for their life. I work with individuals that are like this. They, they're always learning about something more, whether it's being a minimalist, whether it's finding yourself in the woods. Like, there's all these things that we can do to try to find peace and hope, and it's all because 
you've heard this before, and it sounds kind of cliche. We all have a God-shaped hole in ourselves. That God is not in us. He's actually apart from us because of sin, and he wants to be he wants to reclaim us. He wants to buy us back, redeem us from sin, and actually come and dwell inside of us. And a relationship with him is the only thing that will make things the way they've always supposed to have been. And so um, he says, in the last days, there will be people that will come along. They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boasters, proudful, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. If there's something that I've noticed a trend in, it's even in a simple thing. And we talk about disobedience of parents. Every kid is, by the way. But it will increase, and, and people won't, won't honor their parents. If, if men and women would honor their parents, I don't believe there would be a need for nursing homes. To honor our mother and our father is one of the Ten Commandments. And so what he's saying there is not so much just what they will do, but the fact that they will rebel against the simplest commands of God. They won't have any self-control. They'll be unforgiving, slanderers, unloving, brutal, despisers of good, traitors. They won't even keep their word if they make a, a vow with somebody. Like, hey, no problem, I'll take care of that project for you. And then you'll pay them and they won't do it. They'll be traitors. They'll be headstrong, prideful or haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but actually denying its power. And so I believe that we live in a time where there are people who darken the doors of churches every week. They have a form of godliness. They're, maybe they're even reading their Bible every day, but they're not letting God have control. They, they love God. They have a form of godliness. They even profess to be Christians, but they're not those who allow the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to change them. And this is a dangerous thing because we can subject ourselves to the truth of God's word every week and ignore it. We can, we can come to church and we can spiritually actually be pagans in the way that we live our lives. And so to let God breathe his life into us is something that we need to be careful about. And actually in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, I'm going to go there real quick. Paul warns the Galatian church, which is full of people who are self-righteous because of what they do or don't do in their legalism, and he says, Brethren, if a man among you is overtaken in any sin or trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. And so maybe you don't consider yourself one that's not allowing the word of God to have an effect on you, and you see people in your lives that are, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ to correct them. But he says there, he puts in a uh, little caveat, he says, while you do it, do it in a, a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Because uh, we're not Jesus, we're also tempted to fall in these areas. And sometimes the things that we notice in other people that they struggle with, or they're, they're not even struggling with, they're just letting happen, we, we notice in other people, but many times we notice the things that we struggle with. We notice their faults because we got them too. We know what they look like. We look at them every day. And so we have to be careful to correct them in a spirit of meekness. And kind of go back to what Jesus said, you know, make sure we're plucking the, the two by four out of our eye before we try to pluck the splinter out of our brother or sister. 
And so to be discerning in this. But he says, of this sort are those who creep into households, verse 6, and make captive those who are gullible, women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says there in verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. And so he makes this obscure, seemingly, Old Testament reference to a couple of characters by the name of Janus and Jambres. And so I'm probably totally messing up their names, but that's what I call them. Um, but if you go with me to Exodus chapter 8, we can read a little bit about them. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to point out something I didn't notice before this study. Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. See, here's what happens when God speaks to people. God is using Moses in this particular instance in the book of Exodus. And in chapter 8, by then, he's, he's been told by God, I want you to go to Egypt, where you came from. You've been in the desert for 40 years. He speaks to him through a burning bush. He says, I'm going to use you as a deliverer. I'm going to send you back to Egypt. You're no longer going as an Egyptian. You're going as the deliverer of my people, the Hebrews, which we all know, hopefully, that actually Moses was a Hebrew. He was born of a Hebrew woman, and they were instructed to kill all the Hebrew boys because the nation of the Hebrews was getting so strong and powerful in the nation of Egypt. And so the king at the time, the Pharaoh, said, let's kill all the boys so we can always be stronger than the Hebrews and they won't overtake us. We can keep our command over them. We can keep them enslaved. And so these, they, the woman who had this baby took this baby by faith, placed him in a little ark, as it were, a basket into the river there, and she, and, and she watched as her child went on, trusting that if she did not allow this child to be killed, that God was going to take care of it. And out of that, we have Moses, which means out of the water. And so Moses uh, becomes this learned man. He's raised by uh, one of the king's household. And when he's raised at a certain age, he's given all the education. But then, kind of seeing what his future looks like, he sees one of his brethren in trouble, and he gets uh, frustrated because his people are being enslaved, and he kills an Egyptian. And murder, even in their society, was punishable by death. And so he flees being punished, goes out to the wilderness, takes a wife, uh, meets a family, stays out there with his father-in-law, which I love the father-in-law's name, Jethro. He goes out and hangs out with Jethro in the desert, and then he comes back after 40 years, and God says, I want you to go and deliver my people. And he said, well, who am I? I got a speech impediment. I don't, they're not going to listen to me. They don't respect me. I murdered one of theirs. And God said, I'm going to use you. Go. So when he finally goes through this rigmarole, he goes, ends up in Egypt, and then he's told that he's going to take his staff to prove that he's actually of God, throw it on the ground, it's going to turn into a serpent. When he picks it up by the tail, it's going to turn back into a staff. That will be a sign that he's sent by God. And when he does this, guess what? He does this before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes, big deal. And his magicians, his soothsayers, his own religious elite say, well, we can do that. 
and they throw a stick on the ground and they perform the same miracle. And Satan will take what God does and he will always imitate it. And it will look so good, but what happens to that staff when it turns to a snake is Moses' snake goes over and eats that snake. But he's still able to do the same thing that Moses was. So what what qualifies you to tell me God said, let my people go? So as we know, there are multiple times where there's plagues, and these are all signs to the Pharaoh, let my people go, or it's not going to go well for you. And God is warning the Pharaoh, look, I'm really bigger than you, and you need to heed my warning. Well, Pharaoh uh, many times responds and says, okay, I'll let your people go. And then when the plague goes away, he goes, well, never mind, he hardens his heart. But here in Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. And all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, if you live in Egypt, there's a lot of dust there. That's a lot of lice. I came up with that all on my own. That's a very observant thing to say, right? But then it says, Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but look at this, they could not. They were not able to. It was exposed at that point that, and they even testify and say, so there were lice on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh this, excuse me, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. All the other stuff, they were like, well, we can do that. But this one, the lice, well, we can't do this. This must be God. Yeah, thanks for that. In the meantime, to show that God wasn't really God, when he plagued them with frogs, you know what they did? To help their Pharaoh, they made more frogs. That's not helpful. Make the frogs go away if you're that powerful. But they don't. They just imitate what God's already done. There's no creativity in it all. They're not deliverers. They're enslavers. They're plaguers. They're not helpful. They can't get rid of it because it's the power of God all along. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So, when there's a work of God going on, and God's trying to reveal himself powerful, there's always wolves in sheep's clothing that show up and go, well, I can do that thing. And what they do is they distract from the work of God, and they draw away people that are weaker in order to bless them, help them, give them the prosperity he promises. No, actually to enslave them. And here's the crazy thing about Satan. He comes along as an angel of light. He promises you pleasure. He tempts you to do the thing that you end up doing. And then guess what? After you do it, he doesn't high-five you and say, welcome to the crew, let's party. What he does is he says, I can't believe you did that. God can't use you. God doesn't love you. How can he love somebody that would do something like that? So he accuses you, and then he condemns you for it. Satan has always been that way, and he always will. He promises pleasure, and he can't deliver, and then he enslaves you, and he makes you his own, and then he tries to keep you bound by your sin. And so that's what Tim, he's talking about to Timothy here. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just like Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these men also resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further. 
for eventually their folly will be made manifest to all as theirs also was. You know, they, they were seen as false prophets. So, they're imposters. They're wolves in sheep clothing. So he's warning uh, Timothy to warn his people. So in verse uh, 9, we can, or excuse me, verse 10, we continue. He says, but you, in contrast, but you, not being one of these disapproved workers, he says, you have carefully followed my teaching, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, love, and perseverance. You've witnessed my persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to me. And he specifies the places, Antioch, at Iconium, and in Lystra, what persecutions I endured. He's, remember, he's just taught him about enduring through hard things so that God could use him. But then he says, uh, you've witnessed me endure through persecution. And out of them all, look at this, the Lord has delivered me. He doesn't say, and out of them all, I did great. Look at me. He said, and out of them all, God was faithful. I experienced hardship. I experienced persecution. Uh, but guess what? God brought me through it, and he's going to do it for you too, Timothy. That's the message. He's brought me through it. He brought me to it. He brought me through it. It was all his will. I'm a, a prisoner now according to the will of God. And if God, whatever God calls you to, Timothy, he's going to bring you through it too. You've witnessed it in my life. Now you might have an opportunity to exercise it. And, and he actually references places where Paul had been uh, tested and found approved. When you approve something, you're essentially measuring it up to see if it, if it meets spec. You know, at work right now, we, we grind tools, we, we flute drills, and we do all of these things, but you can't just grind it and send it to the end user. It has to meet certain specifications. And God is doing that with our faith. He's, he's turning up the heat on the furnace. And we are metal, ready to be molded in, into his image, not into another image. And as he turns up the heat, he's got his eye on the thermostat. He knows how much temperature we can take. He knows how much to apply to our lives in order to refine us and make us like gold and silver instead of just wood, hay, and stubble. He wants to remove all the wood, hay, and stubble. I went to a, a factory one time, and they were actually recycling aluminum and steel. And one of the things they would do is they would take all of it. They would get all the wood, hay, and stubble out of it because it usually came from a construction site. They would put it into this ginormous kiln bigger than this room, and then they would turn up the heat, and they would just crank it. And you know the electric company loved that kiln because they just turn it on, and they heat it up to several thousand degrees. But they would do that so that the metals that were pure would actually stay on the bottom, and the impurities would come up to the top, and then they would take this thing and they would rake the dross off the top of it so that it was purified metal. And then they would heat it up again, and then they would cool it. And they'd go through all this metallurgical process in order to pre present something. Now, they weren't making gold and silver. They were making aluminum, probably make barbecue grills or some sort of aluminum siding or something. But in order to make it pure and useful, it had to go through a process of change. And we are the same way. Our faith has to be purified. Our lives have to be changed from glory to glory. And God allows the heat that Satan uses to try and condemn us. He allows Satan to be the power source. Hey, wear yourself out because I'm going to use it for their good. 
And then as he turns up the heat, he actually produces something in us by his grace that Satan looks back and goes, oh man, I shouldn't have helped. There I was trying to mess him up and I ended up helping further the kingdom of God. And I think he's going to have a lot of regrets over that. But here we have Paul talking to Timothy and he says, you've seen the way that I live. Timothy witnessed Paul get stoned to death. To death. And it's interesting because God supernaturally brings him back to life, resurrects him. You know what Timothy, Paul does? He stands up and he goes back into the town where the people were that stoned him to death. Because they thought he was dead and they knew he was dead, so they drug him outside the city. And then God raised him back up and he stood up and walked right back to where the problems were. And so he says to Timothy, you've seen me live through this stuff. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's not not an if. That's if, it it kind of is, but he says all who desire to live godly. That doesn't mean you have to be like Paul going out fire and brimstone preaching to a bunch of people that will stone you to death. That means that if you want to be godly, if you want to display God's goodness, if you want to be convicted by the the word of God, and live out the way that God's called you to through his Holy Spirit, guess what? The world is not going to high-five you for that. They're going to try to do all that they can to discourage that. They're going to call you hateful. They're going to call you a bigot. They're going to call you a fundamentalist. They're going to call you all kinds of things. But the question is, do you really care more about what they think or what God does? When the first apostles went out and started proclaiming the gospel after the out- outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they were told by the religious leaders of the day, you need to stop proclaiming this Jesus. He's dead, and you need to stop proclaiming this. And they said, well, you judge for us, if you want to, whether it's good for us to obey you or to obey God. And they decided they were going to obey God rather than men. It was more expedient for them. And so he says there in verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Not just evil men, but also those who claim to be Christians were actually just hawking a false gospel. Those that will come along and, and, and tell you to send your money in for a seed faith. You know, if you've stayed up late at night and watched any of the telemarketers or the, you know, the, the televangelists, they will stay up all night. They'll have their programs on all the time and they'll try to pick off gullible people that are at the end of their life. They got health problems and say, hey, do you have health problems? And of course, at three in the morning, if you can't sleep, most of the time you're going, yeah, I do. I feel horrible right now. You know, is your life tough? Yeah. Send us your money and we will, we promise you'll be healed. We're praying for you right now. And they really don't care about you at all. Um, so, you know, he says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What you don't know is about those people, we should pray for them because they're also being deceived themselves. And then he goes on to say, but you. So we've talked about all of these individuals that got major issues and we need to call them out. We need to do it in meekness and we need to make sure that we are walking in the truth and that we're not imposters. But then he says, but you, Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
He says, you, you've seen my manner of living, but it's up to you as an individual to continue in the things that you've learned and remember from whom you've learned them. Go back one slide, I'm sorry. Evil will increase, but you must continue walking in the truth. And this was the same message that Paul actually told the Ephesian elders in his third missionary journey as he was getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, verse 25, uh, Paul called together the elders from this church in Ephesus, and he warned them, and he weeped with them, and he let them know that false teachers would come. And in verse 25, he said essentially the same thing he's telling Timothy. He said this, Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned, or I have not avoided, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which you, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I am guiltless of your blood. I've told you all that God's given me. He said, I'm guiltless of your blood. I'm innocent for this one reason. I have proclaimed to you, I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. All of scripture, all that he had up to that point, he proclaimed to them. He taught them the Old Testament and revealed Jesus throughout the whole thing. He said, I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He says, therefore, as because I've done this, take heed to the word that you've learned. Let it affect you and then use it to affect those under your care. To be a good shepherd, feed your sheep the word of God. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. If you want to be good, you don't want to be imposters, but you want to be good leaders in your families. Do not shun to proclaim to your children. I don't care how old they are. Speak the word of God into their lives. I don't care how young they are. Speak the word of God into their lives. If they don't understand yet, pray the word of God over them. Make sure that the word of God, though, has had an effect on your life. That is your first ministry to your family. Make sure that your salvation is evident to each one that you live before. And then as a result of that, or into them the things that you've learned that have affected you. So he's warned them of this, and he's doing it again. So he's going to get ready to get on my favorite soapbox, the important of God's word. But it's not a soapbox because it's in the word today. Well, I'm not just jumping around. It's not my hobby horse. This is something that came up in scripture. And so it's a good opportunity. So in verse 14, he says this, you must continue in these things. And then in 15, he says, and that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to, look at this, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible that we hold, has power. And they are able to make us wise. Not just for daily living, but it is actually able, the Word of God, able to make you wise for salvation. Able to draw you to a place where you understand that you need to put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus. They're able to make you wise, to open up your eyes. My daughter and I were reading a story yesterday, and it got us talking about blindness. And I said, did you know Jesus can heal blindness? He did in the New Testament, and I believe he still can. But he did that to show us that he could heal our spiritual blindness. And so the word of God, Jesus himself, 
stands up, talks to this man that cries out to him. He says, son of David, I'm blind. Heal my blindness. And so the man, Jesus responds, and he says, come here. And he takes dirt, and he rubs it on this man's eyes after spitting in it. And then he says, go wash your eyes off. And when he does, the scales are removed, and he's able to see. And one of the themes in Ephesians is Paul prays that God would open the eyes of our understanding to what God has for us in his word so that we can be wise unto salvation. So in verse um, 14 and 15, uh, it's talking about the vessel and how important it is, and I talked about that. But these scriptures that we read are life-giving. And I think this is interesting because it says there in verse 16, don't go to the next slide yet, but it says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. So the Bible that you and I hold has been tested by those that have gone before us to see whether or not it agrees. That's why we have the canon, the measuring stick, what belongs in Scripture. But it's given by inspiration of God. So men of God did not write this down at their own will, but the, wor- the, the Spirit of God dwelling in them actually inspired them to write it. And the word inspired there means God breathed. Now remember with me to Genesis chapter 1. God breathed into these dust-formed bodies the breath of life. And the Hebrew word there is ruach. You got to spit when you say it, ruach. Like you're hawking up, you know. But what happens is we, we think of God's word as men wrote things down, and no doubt they did. But don't imagine them as the ones that came up with what the word says. Imagine them as the pens in the hand of God. That God wrote it down using people to do so. He didn't take away their personality. He didn't make them robots. He inspired men of God that were faulty and frailty to write the word of God, and somehow it all agrees with itself. Over the course of thousands of years, he wrote this word, and it all agrees. So the other words that come from that are ruach, are wind, breath, and spirit. And the first time they're mentioned are in Genesis 1-2, the second verse of the Bible. Actually, in creation where God spoke creation into existence, and it says there in verse 2 that the earth was, out, was without form and void. It says there in verse 2 of chapter 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and look at this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and the word there for spirit is the breath of God. So I just think that's interesting because then again, the Spirit breathes life into Adam and creates Eve from Adam and the breath of life still in there, the importance of that. And then we get here and he says, all Scripture is breathed upon or inspired by God. He's the source. He's the giver of life. And the Greek word in the New Testament is actually pneuma. When we get our word pneumonia or pneumo, anything that has to do with lungs. Those are words that are too big for me. So here we are. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So Jesse, I've held you back long enough. You can go to the next slide. In verse 16, he says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and this is talking about men and women, but it's the, the man, the head of God may be complete, thoroughly, and equipped for every good work. So scripture is profitable, right? Now Jesus 
what kind of prophet are we talking about here? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, he's already said, he said this, that there are those who will come along, they will wrangle over useless things, they will have corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means to profit or gain. So he's not talking about financial profit, although I do believe that if you took some of the proverbial wisdom in Proverbs and you used it in your business practices, I do believe it would make you profitable. But what he's talking about when he says it's profitable, it's profitable to those who hear it and apply it for teaching, in other words, for instruction or teaching, for reproof, which is conviction. Uh, Did you know the word of God is actually meant to sometimes call you out on your bogus life? That the word of God is meant to go, hey, you're wrong. Now, how many people in here like to be told you're wrong? Yeah, me neither. I hate being told I'm wrong. I kind of recoil if somebody does, even when they're right. But we need to be sensitive because the word of God is meant to reprove us. When we are not proved, when we are not signed, sealed, and delivered, when we're on the wrong side of the road, if you are driving down a two-lane road and your wife doesn't tell you or your friend that's with you doesn't tell you, hey, you need to get on the right lane, you would probably think they don't love you, wouldn't you? God loves us enough to say, hey, get on the other side of the double yellow or get off the rumble strip. You're about to kill us. You know, my kids are always, you know, we hit the rumble strip and they're always like, daddy. Well, there's not much room. I'm kind of a wanderer. I'm so glad for those though, right? How many people's lives have been saved by the rumble strips? Well, God's got his rumble strip right here for us. We, we kind of start gazing at things that are going on along the road spiritually, and our, our steering wheel goes with it. And then the Lord goes, and we go, oh, sorry, Lord. Thank you for warning me. Thank you for shaking me awake. Some of us fall asleep spiritually from time to time, and God's going, wake up. What are you doing? You're going to go off the cliff and take your whole family with you. So he warns us. He reproves us. The word of God is able to do this. It's good for correction. He doesn't just tell us we're wrong, but then he also tells us what we need to do to get right. And then it's good for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let me ask you this morning, what has God called you to do with your life? What has he given your hands to do? Did you know that if he's given you something to do, and he has given each one of us something to do, whether it's in the body of Christ, and whether it's in your family, whether it's in your, in your job, he's given you things to do, but he also wants to show you how to do it. He's not just given you your tools and then said, good luck, I'll be back in four hours. He said, here's your tools. Uh, now, I'm going to be with you while we do this together. He's not like me when I work on, I was working on the Jeep yesterday and the four-prong connector for my trailer hookup, I'm going to need that next week. So I'm putting a new one on because that little ground thing came off. And my daughter goes, I want to help you. And I go, okay, come on. What I'm saying is I want you to be with me while I'm doing it, but don't try to help because you might mess it up, right? But God's, God's a good dad and he also can overcome all our mistakes. So he's saying, I want you to come help. I'm going to be with you, I'm going to instruct you, I want you to do my work, but I'm also going to instruct you along the way. 
Now, I'm, I, as a child of God, I don't need to be like I was growing up. Because my dad would tell me to do something, and then he'd want to be with me and tell me how to do something. And I would just say, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and then I'd hit the stump, you know, because he'd be warning me, hey, there's a stump right over there by that tree, and it's just the right height where the blades are going to bend. And I know, you, you told me that a million times. Well, I do know. That doesn't mean that I'm heeding that instruction. That just means get off my back. And sometimes I think we're like that with the Lord. We read the Word of God. We want to hear what it has to say. We respect God, but we don't always take heed to His instruction. And so um, I guess if there's anything I want you to take away from this morning is that God's given us things to do, and He wants to equip us. He wants to teach us. He doesn't want us to be like the women described in this chapter that are always learning but never come to the knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want us to be those that don't have a foundation. He wants us to be soft enough to be willing to be told by the Lord that we're wrong or by our brother or sister. He wants us to be those who are willing to take correction. He wants us to be instructed in righteousness. He wants us to come to maturity. He wants us to grow up and get out of his spiritual basement so he can bring somebody else in. Some of us spiritually play video games all the time and then we mock the guys that are 35 years old living in the parents' basement. Spiritually, we need to get out of the basement and start living and, and doing what God's given us to do. And then we need to be equipped so that we can do what God's instructed us. So um, the Word of God is sufficient for all these things. I, was, I went for a run this morning and I actually met up with one of my neighbors. His name's Monroe. And we were talking, and he goes, you still preaching? Now, this is the first guy I met when we moved down here because radar ran off because we didn't have him in the backyard. The doors were open. And he, apparently, he went down the street and was hanging out. And this neighbor comes up to the house, doesn't even know me, but somehow he knew I was new in town. And he said, hey, is this your dog? And I said, yes, thank you. Well, five years later, he said, are you still preaching? And I said, yeah. I told him we moved and a couple other things. And he goes, you know, we used to go to church. But nobody's teaching the Word of God anymore. Now, my answer to him is like, go to church anyway. What are you doing? But the other thing is, like, what are we teaching if we're not teaching the Word of God? What are we telling people if we're not speaking the Word of God? Anything that we have to say apart from this is not the breath of God. It's just our hobby horse. It's just our soapbox. It's just our opinion. Opinions are like, everyone's got one, right? But the Word of God is life-giving. It is literally oxygen to lungs that are starving for oxygen. It is literally bread for those who are starving. It is literally life-giving water, refreshing for the soul. But the question is, we have it. Are we letting it be the breath? Are we letting it be our bread? Are we letting it be our source of life? So, Father, we thank you for this admonition, this warning from Paul to Timothy. I confess to you, Lord, that many times I have not let your word speak into my life. I've read it every day, but not necessarily taken heed and, and, and learned from its instruction. So, Father, forgive me. If there's anybody else in here that's like me in this manner, I pray that you would restore to us the conviction that your word is all-sufficient, as the Apostle Peter wrote, he said, in your word contains all the things that we need to supply us life and godliness 
and the instruction in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you are everything. You are the word of God made flesh. So, Father, help us to, according to and being empowered by your Holy Spirit, receive instruction, receive correction, receive reproof when we're in the wrong spot. Be sensitive to you when you want to instruct us to do something differently than we've been doing. Help us not to fall in the pattern of tradition. Help us not to fall in the pattern of just the ruts we get ourselves in, uh, our family traditions, our the things we've always done a certain way. Lord, help us to let your life-giving breath be breathed into our lungs once again. And as you do that, Lord, let us let you have control. So, Father, we love you. We pray that this, this teaching would affect the, the way that we live our lives so that others would see the life that has poured into us and has changed us and is giving us renewed breath each and every day to keep going. And Father, we pray that many more would be saved. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship. Take all the ground you want, Lord. We are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.